If you want something that you have never had, you have to do something that you have never done before. My guest in this episode lives and embodies this sentiment. My name is Ali Hill and this is Stand Out Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness and the mess and the uncertainty of our world. As a psychologist, I know the power of carving out space to truly connect, to share and to listen to our stories and that is the magic of this podcast. Australian Samantha Gash started running as a break from studying law. Little did she know that those small steps would turn into a journey that has seen her run over 20,000 kilometres across every continent on planet Earth. And along the way, she has raised approximately $300,000 for charity while advocating for women's empowerment, social change and access to education. The list of what Samantha has achieved is long. It's absolutely remarkable. And today, we don't get a chance to go into every single one, but we do talk about her experience of a 77-day run where she went from east to sorry, from west to east of India covering, listen to this, 3,253 kilometres. I can't even comprehend what that would have been like. She's also run the Racing the Planets 4 Deserts of Grand Slam in one calendar year. She has run the 379 kilometres of the Simpsons Desert across Australia amongst many other endurance runs. Samantha has a heart for charity and fundraising and earlier in 2020 she wanted to do something to support the bushfire appeals here in Australia. She pulled together overnight a virtual relief run thinking it'd be nice to raise maybe $10,000, $20,000. The response was phenomenal and people all around the world contributed and ended up raising over a million dollars. Samantha has also appeared on reality TV the Australian Survivor and is currently appearing in the world's toughest race hosted by Bear Grylls and it's currently airing on Amazon Prime. We talk about what drives Samantha, her connection to the bush trails in her own backyard and life as a wife and a mum. Samantha is real, authentic and as down to earth as they come and you're going to love every minute of this conversation with Samantha Gash. Sam, it's such a delight to be chatting with you. I know. I've given you the most inspiring backdrop. Um, in The white wall, everyone's got these amazing like bookshelves and I'm like, white wall, no distraction. Exactly. I'm <laughs> almost picturing there is this book. It's called When Women Were Birds and it's about this uh, lady whose mother passed away and when her mum passed away she said, I have this bookshelf of journals and when I pass I want you to read all of my journals. And so the daughter kind of, you know, took that message and really took the time and finally sat down in front of this bookshelf and pulled out all the journals and every single journal was blank. There wasn't a single thing written on the journal. So I almost feel like this is your bookshelf on the back. It's just blank and open. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the root of the blankness is that um, my husband Mark and I, we live in the Danong Ranges and we have the worst reception known to earth so I feel like we had the best environment to be in lockdown in isolation for but not to run a virtual business (laughs) so this right now is my 
friend's house who has the wonderful NBN that's just been plugged into and I basically just walk into their house every single day, today uninvited, um, and I just use their office. <laughs> I reckon that is the best of both worlds. You can get, get it when you need it and walk away from it when you don't. How yeah, we have that? like black hole of where we live. Even like some of the hills near where I live, the like reception is super precarious. So people who know me well, and obviously I'll make phone calls if I'm in the car uh, and I'm not with Harry or Mark, but it's just like, oh, cut out. It's cut. <laughs> and they're like, oh, Sam's in the weird hill again. <laughs> <laughs> and how has this experience been for you? How is lockdown coming out of it, potentially going back into it? How's that been for you? If I was, if you were up to ask me six months ago, how would it feel to have so much of what you know taken away and to have a complete halt on the plans that you were progressing towards? Like the theoretical idea of that probably would have spun me out. But the reality of it has been kind of liberating. And I think when you're someone who's like so wired to plan to plan and you get very attached to the plan in order to keep the motivation up to keep going forward, I'm now still moving forward, but I'm loosening my attachment to the goal and I'm enjoying the process. And I, with every intention that I'm like, that goal, that this new goal that I've now created in this COVID world could be taken away because everything has so far been taken away that I put into the blueprint for, you know, 2020, 2021. I was meant to be running across the United States right now. I mean, you know, I'd I'd spent two years building up the funding, working at the route, working at the messaging, and I thought that would, you know, I thought that would break me apart, the idea that something I really wanted to do, that I'd worked so hard to create, you know, finally get into a place in my career where the credibility that I've built up and the fact that when I say I'm going to do something, people now know that I'll do it. So, it, I, you know, that attracts um, more people who want to support you. But it's actually been like, uh, you know, I'm def- defined, I think, by saying I'm a realistic optimist. When something doesn't work out, I acknowledge it and I feel the challenge of that, but very quickly I pivot, like constantly. And I'm always like, well, okay, I've now got this luxury of time. Like what do I really want to do if I don't have constraints of travel, I get to be at home with my family. Like, where do I want to put my time, talents and energy into? Is that something that you have learnt over time? Because I think what comes with change of plans, and that's a massive two-year plan, mm. as you say, there's there's almost this sense of my self-worth is tied to doing what I say I'm going to do. Um, so when that's taken away, whether it's got anything to do with you or not, there can be this grief or loss that comes with it. So that experience to be the ability to be able to go, okay, that's changed. Now what am I going to do? Is that something you've developed over time or is that part of your DNA? Well, it's so hard to know. I mean, I don't know if I've reflected. I have reflected more in this time because I've had the space to. Um, you know, I talk about resilience in, in my keynote presentations. Like it's something, it's a part of like the fabric of my experiences. But to actually really see it play out um, with big shifts, like I've experienced setbacks in projects, but the project has still gone on. But for it to be completely like pushed aside, you know, not, you know, potentially gone forever um, after so much time of investment and to and to be okay with that, um, I've been surprisingly, you know, um, impressed with myself and reminded that I can find enjoyment and purpose in 
thing in other things really quickly. You know, as a endurance athlete, I've always said that I've never wanted my identity to just tie it up into one thing. So if you would ask, you know, how do you describe yourself? You know, I actually find that a very challenging conversation. You know, I'm a lapsed lawyer um, and I'm a big fan of alliteration, so I always try and get that in wherever I can. Um, you know, I'm a corporate speaker. I do endurance sports. I do social impact work. I'm now doing podcasting. So and they all tie together in similar values and messaging, um, but the vehicle, the expression of those values is very different. And... I've always said if I was injured, like how would I cope with that because that one thing might be taken away. And when I was pregnant with my my son who's now two years old, I was incredibly sick and I, I couldn't run at all. And so many people are like, how are you coping not being able to run? And I said to them, I've been running for the last 10 years and right now my body is struggling, you know, um, you know, having a child inside me. Enough of my focus is going into just creating this healthy baby and that was an insight for me going, like, I can submit to what my circumstances in front of me are requiring me to, to do. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's, it's a lesson that we learn along the way. Maybe it was ingrained in me as a child, but it, it manifests and it plays itself out through experiences. And I think right now through COVID, like, we are all being asked to think differently. We're all being asked to have a pause. We're getting to be creative. And I think, you know, it, 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 it's an opportunity to see who we are and who we choose to be when it's not we don't, we've had a bit of stability and certainty taken away from us. And therefore we have a choice. It's that collective recalibration back. What are some of the values that are front of mind for you? What are the things that are, you know, mission critical? That's, that sums up who I am. In all of those pockets, as you say, there's almost these threads of, a, of your values. What are some of those? Yeah, and I, I've had to think about it, particularly with the podcast, because when you start to compile a group of people who you want to be on your podcast, I think they're they're always a reflection of part of your values. Like it's why you're drawn to kind of have them and share their story, and you feel like you can be the custodian of that space to create it. And, and you know, I think like you, like I take a lot of um, effort and consideration into how I create that space, and it's so much easier when the person like fits with who you are. Um, so I think um, community. You know, how do we create community even if we can't be in front of each other? Also knowing that, like, community for me can look different. It doesn't have to always have to be on a global level. It doesn't have to always be on a big level. Like the community of my family, the community of the people who live in the Dandenong Ranges, the community of runners that I associate with, the community of speakers that I'm a part of. How can we, how can we like, distill the bullshit that we kind of get ourselves caught up in so often and get to, like, the good stuff? Um, so that's definitely a value for me, without a doubt, um, learning to enjoy smaller moments and not thinking that everything has to be this grand nature, which is why I'm never really interested in like the thing that people do. It's like the process to get there and the values to get there and what they learn along the way. That's I'm just so much more wired to think that that's interesting. Um, and I actually think that's so much more attainable for people to draw from than like the inspiration stuff that's so fleeting and sometimes manufactured. Now you've you've done some amazing things when it comes to particularly endurance running. Uh, the catalogue of runs that you've done <laughs> is long. <laughs> I want to take you to that, um, I guess, those couple of hours before a run, and it might be any of them that you've done, where physically the preparation is done, um, all the outside preparation is being done. How do you mentally prepare 
to step into what I can only describe as the unknown because mm. it's not like you go and do that race to then prepare for the race. So yeah. you are stepping into the unknown. How do you mentally prepare in those hours before you start any of those endurance races that you've done? Well, it's a nice way of distilling it, um, but I think I, I never feel like I'm fully prepared. Um, it's like when you have your own business, there's always so much more that you could do. There's never the, like a really clear finite number. It's like infinite. So there's a submitting for like, okay, I've done all I can do or all the time I has allowed and now how do I become focused on what the next step is? And I've always thought that, um, you know, the preparation phase of most projects is about building up confidence to tackle the unknown. Um, and we prepare and we do risk mitigation and due diligence and, and creating an incredible team and working with your team. We put hours into creating blueprints that sometimes we have to abandon like after one or two steps have begun. But they're critical because you need to do that to get to the next phase. Um, and so the two experiences that as soon as you're kind of talking about this, I'm thinking of uh, when I ran across the Freedom Trail in South Africa in 2014, and also when I run across India from the west to the east in 2016. And, and if you kind of, you may notice through this conversation, I, I definitely talk about life in like blocks of two-year periods um, because for most of the projects that I do, like there's this two-year um, lead into it. And the projects, the actual execution of it is like it's very hard and it's intense and it never goes to plan, but it's actually a fraction of the time of the in, in, you know, entirety of the project. Uh, and so before I started South Africa, like we had to, there's always always so many logistics that gets in the way of being focused and and having clarity. Um, And I just remember standing on this like unceremonial start line, like we created it ourselves. There was no one else there. I had my team. I was running with a lady from the UK. Um, She was 51 years of age at the time. And we actually had driven to this start line and it was like, it was very bumpy and I'm sitting on my like boyfriend at the time's lap in the front seat. Like no one had their seatbelts on. So already you're feeling like an abandonment of rules. And um, I remember just going, I have no idea how this is going to look. And then for that project, I was also thinking, I actually don't even know what life is going to look like when I get back home because I had left my job to do this project. I was no longer a lawyer. I'd left my you know, job in finance. It was the first time in my life where I was kind of completely free to try something and there was no, there was no security blanket. Um, and that was liberating for me because I was like, oh, well, I can, like, it's kind of nice like for sometimes to try something and not know what's going to be the next thing um, and to not hold on to the idea of like a visualisation of the end. It's like the visualisation of every single moment in between. And so I just remember I try and visualise those first that first day and I never want to think too far ahead because so much can happen and I, I like to be very present and grounded. And you've got to have confidence that you've done enough work leading, you know, in the preparation phase of working out the route and creating the team and empowering the team that things will just work out. And the experience of running across South Africa, you know, 2,000 kilometres, 32 days, you know, we averaged... 64 kilometers every single day and it was complete navigation I was climbing over fences into game reserves running alongside a wildebeest at time I had Nelson Mandela's head security um, officer join us on his mountain bike for a section of the run Rory Stein and it was like try and embrace what South Africa and this culture 
is and you're a foreigner and you get to be privileged to be in this space. So for me, like it's be in the moment, appreciate what you're doing whilst it can really hurt and nothing goes to plan, which does shake me up. I remind myself that I chose to be this and I'm incredibly lucky to believe that adventurous pursuits like this, one, are possible for me and two, um, that I can create meaning and hopefully benefit beyond just the people who get to experience that adventure. So that's a big thing for me. Like, how do you make it bigger? How is it, how is it more sustainable? How can, and not just be inspiration, but how can there be tangible benefit um, through a lot of the social impact campaigns that I create? So I don't actually know if I answered your question, but there's a lot of things, like there's a lot of things that are going through my head beforehand and you actually get into your, into your comfort um, amongst the discomfort by creating this routine every single day of waking up at the same time, you know, putting on your clothes, eating similar food and just like it's the, you know, a lot of people say to me like oh, I couldn't run the distances that you do and I go, well, there's a couple of things. Like firstly, have have you ever wanted to? Like do you actually really want to do that? Two, have you tried it? And three, I can tell you that if it was the only thing that you had to do for that day, you would have a much greater chance of doing it than thinking about all the other things and commitments and responsibilities that you have in your life. I have just chosen to create space to work like that. It's, um, I mean, there's so many things in that. I mean, even that South Africa experience, what comes to mind for me is transition for you. Like it's that that transition in, in life and that experience mm-hmm. um, that you know, holding the and visualising the end very, very loosely is it's mm. almost um, kind of goes against in some ways what we get told, whether it's in business or whatever project we're working on is, you know, visualise the end and visualise where you're going to get to and yet, yeah, what you're describing is, also, is almost visualise the bit that's in front of you. Mm. Is there a point where you allow yourself to visualise the finish line? Loosely. Like you have to... You have to know that you can get to the finishing line and believe it's possible in order to keep going. Um, And so, like, when I was running across India, I did visualise that end. And when I was running across South Africa, I didn't just visualise getting across to the end, but I visualised a great big bottle of champagne at the finishing line as well. So, like... I hope that was there. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I... I'm not a big drinker at all, but when I go to these projects and I'm so dialed into like routine and everything being dialed in, I sometimes want to get to like my crazy. And I think of things, I'm like, I'm going to really party hard when I get home. I never do it. But I'm like, I'm going to have a massive bottle of champagne. I even did it when I was pregnant. I'm like, I can't wait to have the best bottle of French champagne. And someone brought me one in the hospital. I'm like, oh, that's the last last thing thing I want. But I think we it's it's okay to have these dangling thoughts of like the world removed from what you're in um, as like this carrot of like this you earn to, to change up your environment when this finishes. Um, and that's a part of me kind of believing that the pendulum's got a swing. I, I will say that inherent in all the projects that I do is a very uh, intense single-minded focus, which has been hard to tap into since becoming a mother. But, you know, when I ran across South Africa and even the four deserts, you know, in 2010 and then and India in 2016, my, my lens of the world was there were, there were blinkers on. Um, I was very attuned to all the different facets of the project, but other parts of my life I probably let slide to an extent to do what I was doing. And their chosen sacrifices, I don't regret it, but I have to own that I make, I've made sacrifices along the way. Do you and think that's important to be able to achieve what you have been able to achieve? Like do you think that's actually a really important thing to be 
you know, um, I imagine single focused on what you eat, when you eat it, when you sleep, like let alone all the other sacrifices, how much of that is do you think required? I actually think the single-minded focus isn't so relevant during the project. It's beforehand, you know, because when you're out there and doing the actual run, like there are no other distractions. It's you, the road, the, the mileage you've got to do the day and all the crap that's happening to stop you from doing that and that's what you're working through. The distraction is when I'm back home and other opportunities are coming my way and I have to go, well, if I if I believe in running across South Africa, if I believe in running across India and making an impact in the access to education programs across that country, this I have to say no to that because if I say yes to that, I'm saying no to making this trip happen. Um, so I, I believe single-minded focus for me looks at the year and a half before I get to the, you know, the start line. And for me, it's been critical. I don't know if everyone is the same way, but I think we all need to learn what is the formula for ourselves to make things work in our unfamiliar and that's a part of my recipe. With When you describe a two-year process, so from I imagine concept, idea, mm-hmm. you know, that question of what if, uh, to then planning, researching, everything to start line, to, to getting it done, do you have a favourite part of that <laughs> process? Oh, I do. I mean, and it's sometimes even longer than two years because I think sometimes the ideas need to like come to you then ferment. And I think a lot of people these days think, oh my goodness, a dark idea going to like execution straight away. And like that just hasn't, besides when I did the relief run, which was one example of that in my life, and it was a unique set of circumstances. And we can talk about that later, yes. but everything else has had to. I've had to feel it on like a really cellular level and like test it and workshop it. And, you know, I'm not just someone that just rocks up to the start line of a country and goes, I'm going to give it, I'm going to see how this looks. You know, it doesn't fit my DNA of being like lawyer and and, and wanting things to count for more than, than the experience that I can, you know, receive from it. So it was actually in 2011 when I first thought about this idea of running initially from the south to north of India. I ended up doing the west to the east, but I first thought about, oh, my goodness, like, north to south and I was brainstorming I was riding on this bus and I had a couple of Indian friends around me and one of them goes don't you know why would you want to go north to south they do it on like um they do a lot of car racing and like motorbike stuff from north to south it's like west to east like think about like desert to mountain desert to mountain he's like that's uncharted territory and I was like oh my goodness and even then I was thinking like my eyes had been opened in India and I was just like I want to explore this country and share the story so often untold and hopefully just make a small impact in a space that I think is is relevant and that was it 2011 I, I had in the back of my mind and between that time I did a whole bunch of other stuff but I think the ideas that we really care about not only do they ferment if they're meant to be but unconsciously the things that we do from that time to when they actually happen are all like building the blocks, building up our depth of experience, building up the credibility that we have because running across India was like logistically, (laughs) I mean, multifaceted and and highly, highly complex. You you have to visualise the idea of a small white girl running on the highways a lot of the time and in um, quite challenging political safety areas across the country from the west to the east of the country 
connecting myself um, with a not-for-profit organisation that obviously had a high risk about that concept and then going into communities every couple of days at World Vision Support across the country to try and gather those stories. So sometimes I'd run 40 kilometres in the morning. I'd go get into a car and get driven to the cusp of like a massive um, area that was on the brink of what, what was a big slum. And then I would go in and I would meet different families and I would meet children and I would, you know, learn about the social impact projects that they have going on or I'd, I'd learn about bullying or self-defence and we'd capture it and I'd speak and then we'd be like having the team working in the, the van and kind of creating these stories and terrible Wi-Fi and trying to get stuff across to our editing team in India to get it across to the Australian World Vision team. And then I'd go and do another 30, 40K whilst that was happening, finish the run, try and find a safe place to park the van, hook it up to sometimes to, you know, power to get a little bit of air conditioning, which made the van the Arctic tundra. Um, but without it, it was like a sweat lodge, you know. So it, it, it was, and then we were all sleeping in conf, in a very confined space with a drop toilet in the back of the car the van that was you know awesome for everyone particularly with my diarrhea that was like a running theme throughout the project (laughs) so it's I mean I've now even forgotten what your question is but the the projects are multifaceted they're they're highly complicated and I need time to to make that all make sense it's almost um, what's coming to mind for me is almost like the running's the easy part (laughs) everything else is that's yeah, I mean, and I will say the running was actually very hard, but mm. it was also very simple because it was very clear of what I had to do. Like I knew like it's one foot in front of the other and like my body broke down really, particularly early on because you can't simulate those types of conditions. Even if I simu- simulated the heat, which I did by putting a treadmill in a hot yoga studio and I'd like go in there at 11 p.m. at night and, you know, I put the heat up to what it might be in India and it was humid. So I simulated that. But I could not simulate what it would be like to live in a van for 77 days with my entire team, so no personal space and, and high intensity of what we were trying to achieve. I couldn't, um, I couldn't simulate in training being told we can't park the, the van there tonight because there was a shooting there the night before and someone was killed and that's just not safe for you anymore. So we're going to drive around for another two hours just after you've finished running 80K is your biggest day and just, just hang tight and we'll try and work something out. Or my Indian team, like, having you know internal squabbles because they come from different caste systems at times and trying to navigate that or my my Australian team leader losing his shit because India is really complicated and even if you think you're a resilient person like living in India can test everyone's mental fortitude so there was a lot of complication and when I got to go out and run I was like and then someone would put a cap, like would put a phone in my face going, can you answer this question? Like um, the state of Bihar says you, you don't have a permit to run across the country. Do you think that you could write to the Australian High Commission in Delhi and see if you can get, I'm like, and I'd be dictating an email whilst I was running that they could send off and try and get us. I mean. Extraordinary. Extraordinary. It was, it was, it was, it's so fascinating that I think for a lot of people they just think, you know, this girl's running across the country. She is an endurance athlete. And that's why I don't like to define myself as this like athlete because it's it's so narrow a lens to explain what that project was. Just to throw some numbers for those listening so they, they can start to comprehend what you're talking about. So you ran, as you say, from uh, from west to east of India over 76 days and the kilometres uh, that I have here is 3,253 kilometres in that time. So every single day for 76 days back to back, 
running. You mentioned before that your body start started to break down. Mm. Can you describe what that experience was like? What did you notice? What did you pay attention to? And what was going through your mind at that time? The first thing that's going into your mind is just the physical sensation of it. Uh, And also it's kind of like, oh, this is what I was worried. Like, you know, I didn't have 77 day running across a country to know what that would feel like. So, of course, in your analysis of the the project before you go out there, you're like, okay, well, when's my body going to give out? So it's something that you're highly tuned to, like when, how, what's human potential? What's the body designed to do? And I think because even though you've got to think about that to consider it, and that's always a big process for me like work out all the reasons why you might have to quit and then work out how you're going to get through it but to have it in your mind can then sometimes infiltrate you too much and so when I started to get the body breaking down and it was it first started with my knees um I just they were so sore like there was like I, I just remember like my physio and I had physio for a couple of weeks and then he left but he was working into them and they were just it was agony. Like I can't even, it felt like I was going, having torture during the run. It was like torture afterwards because he was dry needling. And I think he was a little bit too aggressive, to be honest. I look back at some footage and I'm like, I think he should have just been doing a light flush out of a massage. But the moment my body started to break down, my mind actually went into quite a bit of a, it's hard to explain it, but maybe a turmoil, you know, self-fulfilling prophecy. Like I, oh, maybe I knew that I couldn't do this or, uh, you know, I'm only in week two. Like I've literally got you know, 60 days left of this to go. Like how can the body actually heal whilst trying to do the type of mileage that I'm doing every day? And that is the tricky point because once you're, if your body's not cooperating, which you've got to expect it's not going to cooperate, but then once your mind also is in a, a negative spiral, your body doesn't start to heal. And I, I do believe mind and body are, are very closely related. And in order for your physical response to start to heal, your mind has to be super strong and positive to be able to start that process. And for a couple of days, like I, I, I was broken. Like I, when I thought of visualizing, you know, running across India, I always thought I'm an idiot. I always kept visualizing the run. Like I'm running, like I, I pictured this, you know, small girl running. And then when I wasn't doing that, it was like, it broke the visualization and so I had to get to a process of releasing that visualization and go, no, like who's telling you you have to run the whole way? Like, you know, if you need to walk an entire day, 70 Ks, mind you, like if that's what you've got to do, that's what you've got to do. And so the first step for me was breaking what I expected it to look like and just doing whatever it took to do it. And it meant that I would sometimes like walk you know, I walked, you know, maybe like 10K and then I would try and run for 400 metres and then walk for another 600 metres. Like I literally was breaking up a three and a half thousand kilometre run into like 100 metre intervals. You know, you would never expect that. And then I got to Delhi and you said before that I didn't stop at all, but I actually did. When I got to Delhi, we needed to go to Agra to visit a community, which meant we actually were getting in a car from Delhi, driving down south to go to Agra. And I wasn't in a good place. Like I was, I was hobbling. I had Jonty Rhodes, who's a South African famous bowler, come and join me. And he, it just, I was broken. Like I, uh, and I decided I needed to get an MRI because my physio had told me, I think you've done bone damage. And if you've done that, I can't even see that you could finish this run. So now there's a lot of seed of doubts in me. And so I was like, I think I need to not go to Agra. I think I need to like, I need to press pause on my movement, even though I was going to be in a car. And so the rest of the team went to Agra. I went to get 
an MRI, which I managed to arrange for a random person who reached out to me on social media. I'm like, do, do you know somewhere I can go and get an MRI in Delhi? Like, you know, I didn't know. And someone helped me line it up. And this is the power of social media and connection. And then I had it. And then the next day they told me, actually, you haven't done bone damage. You've got a, a partial strain to your ACL. And it was all I needed to hear. I'm like, okay, it's not bone damage. That was worst case scenario. Anything better than worst case scenario is good. And I just said, okay, well, it's not, it's not screwed. It, I can move through this, but now I really have to walk. And that started to create this framework of I need to walk for a couple of days with just small sections of running and let's just see what happens when the intensity is backed off. And no joke, but in a week's time I was running, like fully running healed. Like the ACL strain, at least in my opinion, was not causing me any issues. I was using a lot of kinesiology tape, so I looked like a patchwork doll if anyone sees photos of it. But um, I became stronger and stronger. And I had little setbacks here and there, you know, like in my gut or all this kind of stuff. But I did feel like once my mind started to feel like it was possible again, my body started to do all the things necessary to recover. You've, you've mentioned a couple of times that um, part of the way that you are built and part of your kind of focus and DNA is it's not about the, the end result and the inspiration, it's about the journey along the way and doing it for a bigger purpose, that, that there's a bigger intent behind it. Uh, so the run across India was, I understand, raising money and awareness for World Vision. Yeah, so my... Um my, what I'm interested in is exploring the barriers to why children in whatever geographical space I'm focusing on are unable to go to school. And the reality is like the issues are always so unique to where they are and they're always made up of factors of, you know, what's the culture in this area? What's, you know, what's the language that the people are speaking? What's the geography? Like, you know, what's the climate? Um, and so all these kind of things make up unique barriers that stop a child from walking, getting into the school ground. It's not about building a school. It's about even getting into the schoolroom. And so when you're in the west of India, in the desert, you know, you've got significant it, – it, people live in a very stretched out part of India. Like I didn't see huge amounts of people. If you think of the population density in India, we think that everything is like Delhi or – but it was really stretched out. And so kids are walking, you know, four to eight Ks one way to go to st- school and then what you don't also visualise with the desert is like they still get affected by the monsoon, which means now kids are walking um, long, temp- long distances, hot weather, but water sometimes up to, you know, they're knee high. And then you realise there's also no sanitation solutions um, in India. So you, there's very few toilets and if they are, people don't also know how to use them and culturally it's also not known in some of these communities. And so, you know, men and children are defecating on the sides of the roads so combine that with hot temperature, monsoon, feces, and no wonder kids are getting sick. No wonder they can't go to school. So it's just it's a lot more complicated than you think. But then also it's like the smallest things can make can create a ripple effect of change with all those things. So sometimes it's kids just learning how to wash their hands, you know, at critical times, you know, before um, having a meal or after. Um, go in the toilet and that ritual of kids learning how to wash their hands with soap and like learn how to turn on the tap like it that's changing um it's changing some tradition but for the better uh, and it's integrating culture for a benefit for the children so they can go access so um for me like the social impact is so critical 
critical because it's it's about I believe highly in contribution. And before you talked about what are my values, I think community and contribution are, are two of the greatest ones. And I just think that if, if everyone on the planet used their times and talents for some form of contribution, you know, even if it's just a small lens, like whatever it is, it's it could make leave a, a very positive impact. And also it creates a ripple effect because if you live your life that way and you share and you talk about it, it also makes other people kind of go, oh, well, you know, I don't need to do as my full-time job, but what could I do using what I'm good at that possibly serves the benefit for someone else beyond myself? And it could be like going over to a neighbour and feeding their, asking them when they go on a holiday, do you want me to feed your cat? Uh, it's just, there's little things that we can do that create what I consider important values of community and contribution all the time. And I can say hand on heart, there's no way I would have run across India if it was just to experience the physical pursuit of endurance. Because when I had gotten to that place where my knee was like on fire and I was I was collapsing on the ground because he was in so much pain, um, I just that wouldn't have it wouldn't have been enough of a motivation for me to just keep pushing through that because I'm actually quite risk adverse, uh, and so like I need something more for me. Sounds like it's it's mission critical to have that thing that gets yeah. you up and, and keeps you going. And um, I love that, that reminder that when you see someone else do that, mm-hmm. it does kind of trigger that reminder in all of us. Wherever you are, what contribution can you make and, and how can you make whatever task you're doing a bigger meaning uh, mm-hmm. behind that? I'm interested in the experience post-project, mm-hmm. post-event. Because there can be um, when you do something substantial and you get to the end and you've you've done all of those uh, highs and lows and the roller coasters, there can be a bit of post project post event depression or just kind of a now what I'm back to the normality like and you can do something pretty seismic, but the grass is still green and the sky is still blue and you know normal stuff still kind of happens. How have you? found that or navigated that for for each of your events well perhaps this is the realistic optimism in me I like the normal as well like I really actually enjoy the mundane the everyday the in-between like I actually need that Uh, and so when I get back from the projects I know that I have put my heart and soul and I've been incredibly present for that project possibly sacrificing things that you know I shouldn't that I'm very quick to go, okay, let's just, let's rejuvenate, let's recover. I know how intense they are. Um, I don't long for it because I lived it. You know, if you are really there, if you gave it everything, why want to do it again? You know, you, you lived it and it's now for the next experience and not to say the next experience is like what's bigger, better, harder, faster. It's you know, what have I missed over the last two years or, you know, at least, you know, the, the time frame of the project, it's connection to my core people you know I'm whilst I say contribution is important the way I defined community before is the smaller community as well and there's no point going out and trying to save the world if you're not doing much to look after the people that really are the most important people in your lives and a way I can give an example for this is earlier this year I did what was called the calendar club um it was every day of the month of um April I would run the equivalent number of miles uh, and a mile is 1.6 kilometres, um, equivalent to the date. 
sorry, the 1st of April was beautiful. It was just a 1.6-kilometre run. But the 30th of April was 30 miles, which is 48 kilometres. In the month of April, I ran 780 kilometres. And um, it was a lot. And it was a call out from a friend in the US who said, you know, if, if I get a bunch of people to do this, I'm going to donate 10,000 meals to frontline responders in the United States. And I was like, you know what, people in America are doing it really tough right now. And they also really came to our call during the Australian bushfires. And I put a campaign out in January because of that. And a lot of the American community got on board. I'm like, now this is my turn in a reciprocal nature, but also I want to feel purpose right now because everything in my life is gone. I'm happy to go and like push myself a little bit. Long story short, um, when I finished that on the 30th day, a girlfriend who was doing it with me goes, Sam, I reckon we should go again for the month of June. A group of women have, have, have like reached out to me and they want us to lead them to do this. All beautiful stuff. And I said, no way. Firstly, my body is exhausted. But secondly, like, I've been getting up every single day at 4.15 a.m. and I sometimes haven't finished the run till 11.30 a.m. And I'm missing seeing my boy wake up in the morning and I want to take the load off my husband having to look after, you know, be the sole person in the morning. I go, I need to focus on my unit right now. Like that's critical. And she has two boys and a husband as well. And she goes, I remember we spoke like halfway through the next month and she's like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I thought that was a good idea at the time. But, you know, we get excited when we finish something. We And I'm sure people who are listening to this, whenever you complete whatever goal, whether it's because you're um, missing the excitement of pursuing a goal or because you've got post-project blues, we think the answer to that feeling is actually to keep the intensity and drive towards the next thing. The reality is we need a shift into like restoration, collaboration, reflection of what we did because we can make things better in terms of better use of our time, better use of our energy, and we can actually do better things just all around if we actually have that kind of like pause. And I that's why I can't, I mean, I, I hate saying this because so many people are doing it very tough right now, um, but COVID for me wasn't just a global pause, it was a personal pause. And it's reminding me that I actually need to, I need to take responsibility of creating like Samantha pauses in my life, whether there's a pandemic making me do it. Restoration is so key. So important. And to celebrate that, to be really mindful and present to Mm. that, similar to, I guess, how you've described even the runs and uh, is being present to those moments. And, um, you know, I think it is those those possibilities right now to go, yeah, where are those pauses? Do you think that that'll be Samantha pauses or continue on into the future? Uh, I can say, you know, I can right now say it really righteously. Yes, it's going to be, I'm going to be someone who pauses. Every second Monday, no. <laughs> yeah, but I, I need to for my family. I, I, you know, I have a, a very um, intense energy. I, I, I operate with a bit of fire um, that I have an insatiable excitement to do things and I can push my family hard through that process uh, and it's not it's not great for anybody. So I'm learning now like as a role as a mother and as a, a wife that I need to balance it. <laughs> I'm saying like, yes, Sam, don't, don't go and do crazy. <laughs> but also like that's a part of me and like my husband married me for who I am and sometimes I have to say that to him. I'm like, 
this is this is who I am. And like when we made our vows, which were just December, like we were we knew who each other was and we celebrate that. And whilst the coming together requires us to be, you know, think as a team, what's made our partnership so beautiful is that we are big advocates and champions for each other's personal drive. Um, but it's just about kind of like moulding that now as a family unit. I think it's um, I think it's really important for relationship is that constant conversation about growth. Where's yours? Yeah. Where's mine? What, and they can happen at different speeds and at different times but... I yeah, I'm a firm believer that that is a critical conversation that weaves relationships together really strongly. Well, one thing I have also reflected on a lot throughout the years is, you know, I think about how much work I put into my, you know, um, endurance capabilities to to run or the logistic work that I do, and then I sometimes go, how much work am I putting into my relationship? And that's not just a project or a concept; it's actually the human being that I've chosen to ha- chosen to have my life with. And I think that's a good um, stock take analysis for us to all do and go relationships are work. In fact, I think relationships are the hardest thing that you'll ever go through because they're with human beings who are um, inherently emotional and irrational, let me say, and complex. And to get the two of them in unison and, and cohesive together at the same time is incredibly hard, particularly when you're both individuals that like to evolve. So you want your evolution on a personal level to still be in cohesive nature with your partner. Yes, yeah, it's a it's a lifelong learning. That's for sure. And it sure. takes work. Like, Absolutely. and we're always talking about different, particularly once you, you know kids get involved in the picture, and that takes you away from focusing on that part of the work. Uh, you know, we talk about that a lot. Yeah, <laughs> you mentioned before one of the things that uh, one of the projects you embarked on, and it was a very pointing time project, was uh, relief and, and fundraising around the bushfires that happened here in Australia in January. So there were significant bushfires across mm-hmm. a substantial part of our country that really just tore through communities and continue to this day still have impact on large amounts of communities across Australia. And one of the things that you were front and centre on in um, bringing to to place was was a thing called run uh, relief run which was a virtual run that people could sign up for, register for, pay for uh, as part of fundraising. Uh, And that went on to raise over a million dollars. Did you Mm -hmm. believe that that outcome was possible when you ventured on on that pathway? Uh, No. (laughs) You know, I mean, because I'm risk adverse, I typically try and create goals that I think are achievable. So my goal was 20,000 and I thought that was an amazing goal to have, mind you. Because I've done a lot of work in, you know, social impact and fundraising, I know how hard it is to raise money and I don't want to be delusional about what my capabilities are. And, and I cite slight segue, I receive emails multiple times a week of people who want to fundraise for something, often through the vehicle of adventure, and the predominant figure that every single one of them says to me that they want to raise is a million dollars. And I'm always like, I never want to poo-poo on someone's excitement and drive, but I now have learned that there's a couple of things that I like to um, give people as like advice. And and the first advice is how many hours per week are you choosing to dedicate solely on the fundraising side of it? How many hours on, you know, your training and how many hours in logistics? Because they're all three components for any of these big adventures. And then pair up the time that you're going to put on fundraising with the skill sets that you have. 
Um, and then try and create a goal that reflects those two things. Like randomly just saying a million dollars, like with no thought process of like how you're going to get there. It's just, you know, it's setting yourself up to be disappointed. So Relief Run, you know, there was a lot, people were donating left, right and centre. And this was the first week of, or second week of January when I was meant to be on my honeymoon. But we were watching, we were meant to go out to Bermagui. We were meant to be driving to Bermagui and something in my gut was like, I don't think we should go to Bermagui. We were going to drive from Melbourne to Canberra, Canberra across to Bermagui. Two days later, Bermagui was on like lit up and everyone was evacuated onto the beach. And we were going to be there with myself, my husband and our, you know, one and a half year old son at the time. And that's when it really hit, which is interesting because the fires have been going for months before then. And of course I felt um, incredibly saddened, but I didn't feel the personal connection to it. And then all of a sudden I decided to watch the news more and it just got me so depressed. And I almost felt that paralysis of there's nothing I can do. And I think a lot of people felt that at a really similar time, which is yeah, which is why this project worked because I think it, I felt it when a lot of people felt it, and I I remember I had this like the loose idea of the virtual run, but I had no idea how to do it, and I went I thought of it when I went for a run and I pushed Harry in the pram and I was at my parents' holiday house in Inverloch and I did a post on social media and I remember it I was like. I'm really saddened about the bushfires. I know I haven't said anything about it so far. I have an idea. I'll share it with you once it's developed. And a lot of people wrote to me going, whatever idea you have, we're keen on it. And I'm like, oh, geez, I better really better deliver. And this is point one, accountability. You know, I put so, I declared something out to the world, which I will tell you, like, once you have an idea, it always sounds exciting and romantic. And then once you start to work through the nuts and bolts, there's a lot of like, it gets, this gets complicated. This is really hard. And my first thing was like, I don't know how to create an e-commerce platform. I don't know how to get the money to the charity. Like it was a lot of stuff and it's very easy to put things in the too hard basket and become the observer of what's happening as opposed to someone who's driving action. And so the concept was for people to be able to do a virtual, initially it was just going to be a 21.1 kilometre run anywhere, anytime over the weekend of the 17th to 18th of January. And I called my friend, Nick Davidson, who I've worked with a lot on projects and he's got a creative agency called The Bushy Campaign. And the second step beyond accountability for me is find the people who have diverse skill sets from you. Not only do you need their skill sets, but you also need to test out the idea. If people from different walks of life think it's a good idea, well, that's a confidence builder again for you. So you've got to fuel the fire of ideas for them to be sustained for long periods of time. Like they need to be able to, they need to withstand wind. They need to be able to, I can't believe I'm doing like an analogy of fire for the bushfires. Gosh. <laughs> totally works. Keep going. Keep going. <laughs> totally works. Um, <laughs> you got to laugh at that. <laughs> Before um, the uh, monsoon of... <laughs> oh, man, yeah. So I called him and he's like, oh, he first said, like, what, what, do, I, what do you want me to do? And I was like, use your Strap time in. and talents, yeah. <laughs> and then I, I didn't know how big it would be or how hard it would be, but he liked it. And Nick is a busy person and he, unless he really liked it, he wouldn't be fully in, but he started to you know, I created all the copy, I wrote the concept, I started to call a couple of like, you know, Red Cross and all this kind of stuff. And um, I then posted, he said, I think we can get it out by Tuesday, which was like four days time. And then I stupidly put it up on my social media, a video with me, with my son, I was in the backyard. And I got. The, I said, like, I've got this idea and it's very raw and Harry's scratching my face because he's like a scratcher biter. And Mark said, don't edit it, just put it up the way it is, you know, you don't have time, like we're on a holiday. 
and I put it up and it exploded. Like, and then I was like, I don't even have a website. I've got people's interest and I don't have anything for them to action on. So I called Nick and I'm like, get the website up now. It felt and like he, it all happened very quickly. Oh, and I can two only days, imagine. two days, within two days yeah. from my dear to out there. And so we put it out and I was like, okay, still goal, 400 registered participants, $50 a donation, um, which goes 100% to the Red Cross. And we knew that the platform that we used would take a fee and we were just like, we'll cover the fee, you know, thinking, okay, well, it won't be a huge amount. (laughs) God. And then um, it went live and I put it up at 11 p.m. at night. I'm like, okay, we won't get anyone who signs up. I woke up and $11,000 had already been raised oh. kind of exclusively through North America. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. And then I drove to my parents' house and by the time I was back, it was up to like $20,000. And by lunchtime when I had a meeting with someone, it was at like $50,000. And I was like, what is going on? And so I went to Bangalore with um, Lisa Messenger and my friend Sarah Holloway. And for the next four days, we did not leave our computers. And we just were like, it was just myself and Nick working on it and we had to like people like we don't want to do our half marathon we want to do 5k so we added a 5k and this is like step three is if you're going to rush an idea out awesome that's that's not a bad thing these days particularly if there's a sense of urgency around it but be willing to iterate and be willing to throw yourself in it a hundred percent to make those changes and I would say any big campaign that you put out like there's always going to be at least one percent of people who sign up to it who have an issue with it but if like we had 96, we had 90,000, no wait, I'm trying to think how many registered participants we had. It was a lot. Like I think it was like 90,000 or something like that. We had a lot of participants around the world. Yeah, I'll give you that figure. I can't remember what it was. But it was 96 countries on every continent on the planet. A guy in Antarctica did loops around a ship. Wow. And I have never had so many emails the good emails, the bad emails asking like the weirdest questions, but we quickly realised we're not just speaking to our friends here, we're speaking to like people who don't even know us. We need to be professional. And then the media came in and like there was just, I couldn't believe that two people could do so much, you know, and it just, it also showed me like what what can actually be achieved when you really believe in something and momentum starts to build. We both had to drop everything in our lives. I was like, goodbye, honeymoon, that's gone. Um, and then we pulled in two friends to just, it was literally me and Nick and then we had two friends who helped answer answer emails. And 12 days later, you know, over $1.1 million was raised and people all around the planet were running for Australian bushfires and it was incredibly moving that people on the other side of the world, like, gave a crap about what was happening to, I mean, it was devastating. It still makes me quite emotional when I think about it. Like, you know, people's lives were being ripped apart and I'm so glad of what we raised but then I also have this sense of people's lives being ripped apart in places all around the world that don't have that media visibility and no one cares. And there was a guilt that came to me after we raised a million dollars where I was like, I've done projects all around the world and mm. haven't raised a close to this amount. Why do people care so much about yeah. Australians going through bushfires when there's, you know, travesty happening in places that just don't, you know, is it okay, is it okay that in Somalia that, you know, kids are starving? You know, why do we care that, you know, Australian homes are being burnt down when people are actually really losing their lives on the other side of the world? And so I, I did get to this ethical crux of like what do we care about mm. as a global community? That must be really hard because there's yeah. not an answer in that. <laughs> there's no answer and I, I 
obviously I'm so happy with, you know, what we were able yeah. to do and we were really able to support the Australian Red Cross and the people who lost lives, the people who lost, you know, the, those family members and people who lost their homes, they're in for a decade of rebuilding mentally, um, you know, on the ground as well, which is why organisations like the Red Cross don't just give out all the money straight away. There's a strategy in place for it. Um, even though the Australian public are emotional when they donate and they expect it to go in their hands straight away. Let me tell you, it's not how it works and you should be happy that it's not how it works. Yes. Um, but I did just kind of go, where is our global compass of like value and care for like other people in the world? It's, uh, I mean, that's a big question and a really important <laughs> question for us to keep asking. I think, you know, when you talk about that time and space, it's an extraordinary achievement and um, the the ability to kind of be held accountable, to pull people in and to iterate as you go, um, mm-hmm. knowing what you're kind of building as you go is just, you know, it, it was an extraordinary achievement um, and a thing to be a part of just you know, someone who kind of witnesses, my husband and I ran ran that weekend, not that we did any training whatsoever, we went, right, 21 Ks, let's go. But it was, it, what it gave was a vehicle for um, heartache. Like it was, became the vehicle for people all over the world who were seeing the, these images graphically in their, in their lounge rooms to go, what do I do? Um, so even for all of those other questions, what do we care about? What it, I, one of the things that it heartens me about is that there is compassion. Mm, uh, yes. these, these other things aren't seen. They're not, because they're everyday things, they're not a point in time. They're not put in the media. They don't come into our lounge rooms. We don't, we don't be asked to consider them on what do we stand for, uh, each day. And, um, but yeah, it does. It does provide that outlet for that moment, for those those couple of weeks, for the compassion yeah. to be expressed. And I think people wanted to. People had donated already, so it wasn't people. It's amazing how much people were willing to give, but they wanted to be a part of something as well, because mm-hmm. people felt the fabric of what they knew had been stripped away, and so they wanted to make a personal statement and action. And the, you know what was so powerful about it is that group leaders in a certain community like in Sydney or Adelaide or wherever were able to pull together their group of runners that they knew and so the the interesting thing about the relief run is like we said if you're if you create a group of people in a place we'll promote it on our website and like that was the big fielding of, of emails every single day like we were getting emails about how do I set up a group run do I need to get a permit so I'm like go rogue don't you know do it and ask forgiveness later on yeah <laughs> but sometimes there was hundreds of people that like rocked up in Adelaide at a certain time and were running and so it just meant so much more than just it, it meant a lot of things I think to a lot of people in a time where there was a lot of heartache exactly what you were saying and it pulls together your that value around community and how mm. critical that is and the community no doubt you've built over over the years by through connections but then to be able to see people you know step into that value of community um, mm, it's cool. Yeah, is 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 really key. Um, I mean, there's so many so many places I want to go and, <laughs> and ask you questions, and and where we kind of keep going. My kids will kill me if I don't ask you because their favourite show on television is Survivor. Um. <laughs> <laughs> no, what do they want to know? What were their questions? Well, I guess like, you know why why did you uh, sign up to it? What what made you? What prompted you to apply for Survivor? 
I feel like we were in the back of a car once after a talk where you asked me this question, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> Michael Dixon sitting opposite us serenading. Yes, yes. Um, I had just finished running across India and you talked about like what's that post, post-race blues. I didn't feel that but there did feel a an emptiness of um, there was space. There was space and it's not that I was really wanting to f- fill it but I was, I'm still someone who likes different experiences. And so and in one week I'm also someone who's like driven by signs, um, where are the signs pointing me to go as well? I have a lot of trust now that if I just let, sit back a little bit, I'll know where to be pulled because I've done so much hard work in the past. And, you know, you push so much in your early years and, you, well, I did. I pushed in my 20s really hard and now I'm like, okay, stuff is coming and I move forward but I don't have to always be like, you know, being that, you know, that intensity. And in one week three people said you should do Survivor. And, in fact, when I was relaxing, rejuvenating, I watched the entire 2015 or 17, whatever, season in like three days and I'm like, oh, piece of cake. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I, you know, you look at it, what you are drawn to the most and I was drawn to the physical challenges, living in nature, Um, and I applied and got on, uh, which was a little bit of a shock for me that it just seemed so easy to get on, even though there was 24,000 people who applied. I was just like this this shouldn't be so easy because I, I wasn't even invested in the idea at the beginning. I was like, I don't even think I'm going to accept it if they offer it to me. It's probably not good on a brand proposition. <clears throat> but I got caught up, you know, I got caught up in the excitement of the audition process and all oh, they want me and validation of story and all this stuff. And then I head out. So I think it was that. It was I want something different. I want to be out of my comfort zone. I love unique experiences. And I won't lie, I thought I was going to be good at it. Little did I know. <laughs> What was that first day like, that first first evening? You're there, film crew yeah, well, around, you, it's you, now you, live. You, you, you know, contextualisation, you're not just there, you actually are there for like five or six days beforehand but in lockdown. Like you're in each in a room, you can't leave, you've got no technology. Um, they're obviously doing like pre-filming with people but I think they're also doing some like social games on you as well. Like I think everything is strategic with TV, mm. you know, and I actually don't think I make a particularly great reality TV character because, yeah, I mean, I think I did in this case, they liked what they got from me enough to kind of vilify me. But um, I I actually liked the piece. I'd just been in Canada and I was a bit sick and I'm like, oh, I'm just going to use this time to relax. And then we get on the boat and then we had to do this scene on the boat, but they actually then pulled us off and they go, okay, the game starts tomorrow. It's not starting right now. They just wanted to get that opening sequence, which was the only time it seemed staged. Outside of that, it was they didn't interject, but they just wanted to get that opening scene with us all on the boat in the South Pacific. It was pouring rain. We were sitting there from like 3 a.m. Like they knocked on our doors and goes, you're going now. Like it was intense. And later down the track, I was just in the moment. Like I was just absorbing it all, but you know, after I finished the show, everyone said that when they got back to their rooms, they started journaling all the different people and what they thought about them. I didn't do that at all. Like this is how unaware I was of the social warfare. Strategy. I was so convinced that like me just being me is enough. Like I get on with people. I can positively influence them to do what they want to do. Like I don't need to hyper-analyse this situation. And like that was something well, obviously not in my credit because what I'm good at in real life can very quickly be turned to what they call in Survivor as a threat. You know, if you if you can connect with anyone, mm. um, people can go, she's being strategic. 
you know, she's being manipulative. But really it's what I'm good at in normal life. But on the show, like perception is everything. Yes. And all someone needs to do is plant something in someone's head to have people go against you and everyone wants to jump on it because they, as long as this, um, the, the person who's being focused as we've got to get this person out, as long as that's not you, you're happy to kind of go along with that narrative. And that got picked up with me early, like Sam's, because I didn't fit the picture. Like I'm this little girl, I was wearing pinafore. I was trying to play like to be not as physically strong as I was, but everyone's like, she's got quite a strong voice. You know, she seems to connect with everyone. It was just, like, she's not what she's seen. So that's dangerous. Yeah. And then obviously I buddied up with Mark and they just thought like these guys are different. Like they, you know, they're a little bit, we definitely, you know, I think we seemed quite an intelligent um, pairing. We were physically very strong and like it was just last year, the season before, Ellen Lee got all the way to the end as a power couple and people saw that we were that and they were not going to let that happen. Um, so we got booted off really quickly and I think that's a good thing. It's a good thing for a lot of reasons. Obviously, we then like formed a relationship and maybe that wouldn't have happened if we lasted the whole way. Um, hilariously, you know, like we went to the US afterwards because Mark was living in New York, but then we went on a road trip in like California and it's where we actually conceived our child. So like our lives like fundamentally changed in the best way, but mm. if we were planning it, maybe it wouldn't have happened that way. And I also think of the 80-20 rule. Sometimes, particularly with something like TV, you get 80% of the benefit of 20% of the time. And I don't think, you know, if we'd stuck to the end, unless you win, like then you make the money. But if you come third, it's no different. And I think on an emotional level, you know, I've seen how tormented people have come out of that experience on reality TV. And I just am very grateful that Mark and I did that show in a time of our lives where we had done so much already that we knew who we were, we had jobs, we knew our self-worth in the world, that it didn't rattle us. But even people like that, the experience of being edited in a way that maybe isn't a reflection of the entirety of who you are, like that's still stressful. That must be so hard. must be so hard to see it and not know until it comes yeah. out, I imagine. You wouldn't know. Yeah, I was pregnant at the time, so I was totally hormonal too. <laughs> In terms of um, yourself and Mark and the, you know, obviously that, that budding relationship that's, that you're now, you know, married with, uh, with your beautiful Harry, um, was there a point in time where you kind of went, oh, this, this, this guy might be, might be the one? No, nah, not on the show. No way. Like people thought that we were in this. I, I, did, I did like him but you're so drilled onto the game and the intensity of like everything you say, you can see people spinning you can you can sense people lying you can, it's very hard to be around people who you just can't trust and I never gave weight to the consideration of how hard that would be mm. everyone I associate with as a, someone who works for themselves are people that I trust and I want to be with like put yourself in a situation where you're with people 24 7 you you actually need them for comfort and survival at night times because it's so cold but then they're lying to you so that kind of spun me out a little bit. And um, so I, I did trust Mark, but I remember when I got off the show and the doctor came to speak to me and I was just like, I felt like I had this connection with Mark on the show, but I reckon I'm going to be seen like an idiot because I said I trusted him and he probably like, you know, was trying to get me out. And the doctor said something that he probably shouldn't have said because they can't reveal anything, but they go, no, like Mark was once interviewed and asked, would you date Sam in the real world? And he apparently said yes. 
I, they asked me that question too and I was like, mm, nah, <laughs> because I wasn't thinking that. Um, but when I kind of got off, I was like, what? Imagine like if you connect with someone like that under those circumstances where you can't trust people, like that's pretty special mm-hmm. um, to kind of form an, an alliance but something that beyond the game, like I, I, I didn't know anything about his SAS past or anything but I could see I felt something about him. And when we kind of connected after he got booted off three days later, um, it just was all on for young and old. <laughs> <laughs> With all the agendas out. And I can imagine that um, that sense of but not being able to trust the people that you oh. are spending time with when every experience on in, in your endurance events would have been you have to have trust in every yeah. single person. That yeah, I love, I, love, I feel more than ever in my like mid-30s now like, I value the sense of belonging. Um, I like that. I like that with my family network. I love that with the friends I'm a part of. Like I, be- I belong to that. Even if we're different people and we challenge each other, like belonging is great. And Survivor is tough because it throws out the window your reality of what belonging means. Resilience has been a big theme across uh, your your life and um as we step into what's next obviously we're currently still in this phase as you said you should be running across the u.s right now um what what part of you is happy that you're not doing that (laughs) is there a small part of you (laughs) i mean like it well what i can say is like what next is i'm using this time not just with like covid but obviously everything that's playing out of the united states i definitely am using this time to critically examine my own biases um how can I sit back to create space for other voices that haven't been shared as much but also also kind of feeling this I've worked so hard to have my voice as a woman being heard and now I'm feeling that that voice is not wanted right now and I'm I am actually trying to understand like where I sit with that and like do I need to step back from you know, trying to create stuff because it's not my time right now. Like it's, I, I'm thinking a lot about this kind of stuff and I know mm. it doesn't probably make sense when an audience member is listening know. to this. No, but- I'd really like to dive into it because I think mm. what you're starting to describe a lot of people are feeling. Mm. You know, I, you know, some of my, my, my closest friend is Kemi Nekvipil um, and she's, from a background where she has faced, you know, systemic racism a lot of her life and being a close friend of her, we've spoken about that a lot. Um, and now I know that I'm not a racist, but I know that I am aware of, oh, like how, how, how do I show up where my biases of, you know, the experiences and the people that I can draw from, like where am I showing limitations of views? And, like, I think all of us are creating like a little, well, I'm creating a criteria now of things that I want to stand for to play my part in this space. And the first thing is I won't speak on a panel that doesn't show diversity of culture. Um, that's going to be something that's important to me. And I feel we're in a space now where we can say that. And, sure, they might go, okay, cool, we'll just get someone else who is an endurance athlete who speaks about resilience, and that's fine, but at least like I've said that. It's, when I, it's the same thing that when I made a statement going, I will not speak on International Women's Day for free. And I couldn't believe oh, that companies to that had one. so that one. <laughs> I'm so many times where, you know, I, you know, I've had women's groups come to me, hey, can you come and present? We want you to inspire us and like how we can uplift women's voices. But we don't have a budget. 
I'm like, that's where your voice needs to go. <laughs> and it's yeah. not that I necessarily need the money. It's not it's, about it's, it's a value. It's, it's value. being valued for what you're good at and and your story and that you've crafted an art to sharing your story that has impact for others, that that projects, that moves them forward. And, you know, I got, I've been asked by banks, I've been asked by insurance companies, oh, you know, would you like to have the privilege to, to, to share your story on International Women's Day? I'm like, well, yeah, if you pay me. Like it's what I do as a living. Like, mm. And then so Kemi and I, you know, we both we both said that we're, no longer will we speak on International Women's Day. If I choose to speak for free, it's because I have a passion for that particular organisation or I believe what they're doing, not for a wealthy organisation that most certainly should be paying to have a female voice's story shared. And I think the older you get, the more you start to create what value for you really means of what you want to stand behind. And another thing is, you know, with my podcast, I was initially only interviewing people that I knew. And because I feel like I'm doing it remotely, I'm not in person, so I want to have that that rapport. And I actually don't do the video because I use a different platform that kind of records two audio files and I'm not IT savvy to know how to work both at the same time. And I also noticed that sometimes with Zoom, people just look at themselves and I was like, I want you to intent, I want to intensely listen at you and I don't want you to self-audit when you see yourself. Um, and I started to look at all the people I had on and I'm like, oh, wow, if I'm only interviewing people that I think that I have a really close relationship with, there's not as much of a diversity there that, I, that I'm proud about. Mm. And I will also say that I had actually already asked well before all this, a lot of my friends who do come from diverse cultural backgrounds to be on the podcast it just hadn't lined up yet so you know I I feel okay about that but it's it's a conscious thing now it's very much on my mind you know not am I just trying to represent diversity in gender but I I just want different voices experiences way people tell the story sometimes people will be like oh but you had Mark Healy on last week and I loved his style and now you're getting Diana Ryle who was the first CEO of an IT company in Australia and then you're getting Mario Rigby who walked the entire length of Africa uh, and he's from the Caribbean you know I I you know I want there to be this platform of you don't know what you're going to get and it's going to be different lenses every single time. I think there's a call for all of us, wherever we are, whatever the platform is, whether it's work, whether it's with our family, whether it's, you know, a a wider audience, to continue to be checking in. I've been doing the same and some of it's been sitting really heavy uh, in this beautiful place of going, man, I'm I'm shook up and faced with my own privilege uh, in a really, really strong way. I've had some a uh, couple of incredible conversations with a lady, Teela Reid, who's an Indigenous mm-hmm. uh, defence lawyer in Sydney, and they've been really hard but important conversations. Yeah, that, yeah um, because a lot of people who have experienced this their whole lives, they're being flooded now with people going, what can I do? And I've got a bunch of friends who are like, I'm not going to tell you what to do. It's time that you work it out. She actually said that, yeah, Teela said yeah. this on the, uh, the podcast that's um, just come out. And, yeah, she said, we, we're we busy. We've got our own communities to be working with. You need to find your own platform. In your communities. Yeah, yeah. And you've got you know, access to places we just don't. And so mm. they're the places to start. Um, yeah, I think that's it's, it's, it's an I mean, it's an exciting time because it's an exciting time for teams in corporate organisations. And I've always said if you're creating a small team, 
don't get carbon copies of the same person because how how does that serve anyone? Firstly, it doesn't serve the depth of what that project could really be, but it was like why waste a spot on someone who's like exactly the same as the other person? You've already got someone that fits that build of experience and, you know, um, so like that's something else with my expeditions. I'm, I'm quite conscious that in my teams I want to be um, more intentional for that. In terms of those um and the podcast is amazing. So Samantha Gash podcast, there's so many fantastic, incredible conversations around, you know, as you say, from people that have pushed the boundaries that have been trailblazers in in their field. Uh, there's also a show coming out in August, mm-hmm. I understand. So the Eco Challenge, the world's toughest yep. race. Tell me a little bit yeah. about that. Well, I can, I'll tell you as much as I can with my NDA, but... In September last year, um, my husband, myself and two of the teammates were one of 66 teams to go out to Fiji and take part in this race. It's called Eco Challenge, the world's toughest race. (laughs) And it's like 700 plus kilometres of a diversity of um, disciplines from kayaking, outrigger canoe, um, kamikaze, like lots of uh, traditional Fijian boats that were made specifically for the race, um, climbing, trekking, jungle, swimming, you know, but you didn't even know how it was going to come out. Like you didn't have a route. You weren't told when you would do what discipline. You have to navigate the whole way. Once the gun goes, you keep going. And, uh, yeah, we took part in the race. Bear Grylls is the host. It's coming part of a 10-part series on Amazon Prime. And realistically, we may not be shown on, on it. Like, again, once again, it sounds like reality TV. We weren't a particularly drama-filled team. I think we have a really interesting human story of, like, a, a husband and a wife and all that kind of stuff. But we – I can't say much about our team, but, like, we we gelled. Like, it was so good to be a part of a team that had been rigorously tested. We pressure-cooked our team. We had a mantra of brutal honesty, which for some people is – confronting but if we felt something we said it and then it got it got taken away then it was done we never held on to it because in that space when you're so tired like you barely sleep in these races you're eating you know limited food whatever you can carry you're pushing your body into some really challenging tough environments and spaces that you've got real fears in um that you just can't hold on to stuff because that's consuming energy which is such a great life lesson in in teams you create so you know whether or not we're a team of interest in the show um i can't wait to see what we did because we were so sleep deprived like i kind of have forgotten what that was and i wanted to see i want to see fiji sometimes from drone or the helicopter and I can't wait. There were so many fascinating teams a part of that experience um, who became real friends and I'm staying in touch and I'm you know, going to interview a bunch of them on the podcast, but it's just going to be so nice to relive something that was a reflection of a time that is so different to what we have now. I can't foresee anywhere in the immediate future of 66 teams from, you know, 20 countries around the world kind of coming together in one place and doing that. Just like, you know, I reflected yesterday about my TED Talk, which was last year, you know, 2,300 people in a you know a room together listening to someone talk. Like these, those are things that we won't see for some time to come. And you can mourn that that's no longer the reality or you can be like how lucky were we to have that and how do we now still create what the essence of those experiences in a different domain? Yeah, it's going to be amazing to be able to see that 
And as you say, a point in time it might be years and years before any of that can be can be created. In this downtime, which is a bit of downtime, what are the ways, what are your um, methodologies, I guess, for restoring your own energy? What's your recovery go-to? People laugh at this because I spend so much time running outdoors, but my restorative thing obviously are yin-based activities because, you know, I definitely increase my cortisol, my adrenaline by running endurance. Um, so I swing that back by um, it's still active stuff. It's I love nature, so why would I only run out in nature? I like to walk and hike in nature as well, which is definitely was something I do. And I'm very fortunate to live in a national park where like the trails are on my, literally as I walk out of my house and it's just all boom. I, before this run, why I was 10 minutes late is I needed to grab a coffee after running 27 Ks with 1,350 metres of elevation gain. Um, so I just was like, I need a second to compose myself to get my brain working. <laughs> um, but I do that um, really like now having a family, like, downtime is the time that you have with your family as well and it's just we've got a fireplace and um it was like the the way I got Mark to move from New York to the Dandenong Ranges <laughs> I will get a fireplace in the cottage <laughs> <laughs> whatever the it takes the fireplace will keep us warm um but we actually love to just spend time with our friends who live in the hills who share similar values to us and you know this weekend we're doing board games with a mum that I met from mother's group um yeah. where we go over and see them like once or twice a week and we cook in each other's kitchen and it's you know, it's just it's sharing moments of simplicity with people you care about. Like that's for me restorative. I'd love to come full circle. I've just loved this conversation. I kind of feel like we could do this and do this again and explore plenty of amazing topics. Yeah. But the name of this podcast is called Standout Life. When you hear that term, what does that mean to you to live a standout life? Ah. Oh. That's a good one. Um, the first thing I thought of like this standout life, the first thing is on a personal thing and then the second part is more a broader contextualised thing to like community. But standout, I was like how do you find ways to live in like the space that reflects you the most? You know, we're all so different but sometimes we feel this like need to conform and be a really similar person, particularly as a kid because when you're a kid growing up, the education system operates better when people are similar because they can pull them through that system. So a lot of things that kids get told off for is the things that make them different, you know, and, and I've always said like I was told off so much as a kid for talking too much and never sitting still. Like they wanted to corral me into like sit down, don't talk, and now like I literally have made a career and stand out because I, I do those two things. So my interesting thing is like think of what makes you unique and it doesn't have to be a bit, it doesn't have to be grandiose but feeling that confidence to sh- to be in the space of your uniqueness. Uh, and be celebrated for that. Be celebrated for our differences um, even though it doesn't necessarily work for the way our education system brings us up. Uh, and I'm like big into talking about that because I think even as parents, we fall into the trap of critiquing our children when they don't fit into like the mould of everyone else when the reality is sometimes we should be fostering that and just kind of tunnelling it into a into a good way. Like it can be destructive or it can be constructive um, and not pigeonholing our kids to think that our differences are negatives. I think there's so much, you know, I constantly am thinking about school is just one part of 
my kids' mm-hmm. education. It's only one. Yeah. And uh, there's there's bits that they're able to shine and there's other bits where I totally see what you're saying where their their talents are squashed. Absolutely. Mm. It breaks my heart. Like um, Harry's is so young, but even just like a smaller level of like life perspective, Harry's really affectionate. And it's because like Mark and I are very affectionate with him. Like he loved to cuddle and kiss him, but he loves to cuddle and kiss people all the time. And, like, recently he got told off, well, we were kind of got told off that Harry was, like, you know, hugging and kissing, like, too many kids. And I started to be like, oh, my God, my kid's hugging and kissing. And I'm like, oh, you go out and hug and kiss whoever you want. Like, <laughs> you know, how lucky that I have a boy that has, like, he, you know, he's actually, his verbal skills are, you know, some would say a little bit slower, but his empathy is, like, so dialed in. If anyone's upset, he'll just go up to them and, like, hug them and put his head into their chest. And I'm like, you know, if, you know, I value that of him uh, as opposed to kind of following all the natural like milestones of what we say, like up to the age of two, your kid should be able to string this many words together. Like there's plenty of time for you to talk later on, but if you're showing empathy at this age, that's brilliant. It's powerful. It's absolutely Mm. critical. And you were mentioning around standout in a community sense. Oh, well, again, it's like we all have diverse times and talents. So if, if, if you can if you can know what you're unique on and can connect them with people who have like different skill sets, how can you stand out or create standout movements that actually can move our community forward? And so that's a combination of both that collaboration community piece. Standout movements. Standout. I think that's good. There you go. You could get a standout movement series. You we, could have a sub-series yeah, of the big series. Let's do it. <laughs> Website. Yeah. I'm fish- the movement's coming. Copyright, copyright. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sam. Your coffee has has worked wonders. I've I just absolutely <laughs> love this uh, conversation and, and hopefully one day we'll get to do this face-to-face. No. Well, I mean, are you in one of the suburbs that's in lockdown? No, I'm on the Gold Coast actually. So, on the Gold Coast? Yes, oh, yeah. yeah, I wouldn't be able to see you because you don't No, you're not allowed up here yet. <laughs> but at some point we'll, maybe we can go for a hike together yeah, once this absolutely. is all over. Oh, so nice. Thank you for giving me your time and space. You did so, a beautiful job. Yeah, thank you so much, Sam. Really appreciate mm-hmm. it. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's amazing episode. These are episodes that I want to continue to bring to the world because I believe everyone has a story to share and that we can learn and grow by diving into these stories. Now, if you have gotten something out of today's episode or any of the episodes from the Standout Life podcast series, then it's highly likely that you know someone else who would get something from these episodes as well. So my ask to you is to please share the series, send someone today a link, subscribe, rate and review. And by doing that, this podcast starts to pop and be seen by others around the world and we can continue to expand the people, the conversations and the insights that we share together.